Thank you for that introduction. I was actually thinking on the way up here about the fact that the last time I, the first time and ever, only time I've ever spoken to this group was May 2007. But what I was thinking about was the subsequent events, the unraveling of the financial system that essentially began just a couple of months after that and spiraled downward into the catastrophic events of the fall of 2008. And what came right to mind was the old saying, past performance is no guide to future uh, results. And I'm hoping that that applies uh, quite well tonight. Um, I was also, uh, on the way in here, some of you who got here um, very promptly at 5.30, may um, have noticed uh, a fire truck immediately outside the door here. And several firemen had just rushed in. I got out of my cab and right behind me was this fire truck and some firemen rushed in and had axes and were standing in the lobby. There was a woman in there saying, oh, come on in, come on in. It's okay, it's okay. But uh, first thing that came to my mind was, that Bill Dudley? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, as often as the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is referred to as the fire station of our economy, I'm convinced it wasn't his doing and this this was entirely a coincidence. So I want to, on the record... Uh, absolve him of ever any accusation of uh, responsibility for attempting to disrupt this fine gathering. <laughs> so I'm going to be talking about a monetary policy. And as you know, the Federal Open Market Committee conducts um, the nation's monetary policy subject to its congressional mandate. Uh, and that mandate says it's to pursue maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. And most people just drop the moderate long-term interest rates and speak about the first two objectives and refer to it as the Fed's dual mandate. So this dual mandate poses a clear challenge for the FOMC at times like this. Here we are three years after the end of the Great Recession. Employment seems far from what anyone would consider to be its maximum level judged by historical standards. Unemployment above 8%, labor force participation has fallen dramatically, uh, and, and the ratio of employment to population has uh, plummeted to lows not seen in 30 years. So we have seen, uh, over the course of this recovery, uh, several spurts of more robust employment growth, but they all seem to peter out after several months. Since employment bottomed out in February of 2010, we've only managed to add 135,000 net new jobs uh, in our economy. And that's a rate that's generally not expected to bring down unemployment uh, very rapidly at all. So with this as backdrop, the Federal Open Market Committee voted recently, last week, last Thursday, to initiate a new program of asset purchases by buying additional agency mortgage-backed securities at a rate of $40 billion per month. The committee also stated uh, that it expects that a highly accommodative stance of monetary policy will remain appropriate for a considerable time after the, econo- the, econo- the economic recovery strengthens, and that it currently anticipates that exceptionally low uh, levels for the federal funds rate are likely to be warranted at least through mid-2015. As you may know, I dissented 
on that decision and I'm going to discuss the reasons for my dissent later this evening in these remarks. The communications and actions of the committee uh, last week are consistent with a widespread view about the Fed's dual mandate, namely that as long as unemployment remains high, the Fed has room to stimulate employment growth without putting its price stability goal too much at risk. In this view, high unemployment represents slack in the economy that prevents inflationary pressures from taking hold and could even lead to unwelcome disinflation or deflation if left unchecked. A somewhat stronger reading of the mandate even suggests that in circumstances like the present, the Fed can and should accept an increased rate of inflation for some time in order to accelerate the improvement in labor market conditions. While I do not believe that that stronger view of the mandate is driving the committee's recent decision, that's a view that has been associated with a number of prominent economists. So in my remarks today, what I'd like to do is take a closer look at the concept of economic slack and what it means for the Fed's maximum employment mandate. A review of the role of maximum employment in the conduct of monetary policy leads naturally, I believe, to a degree of skepticism regarding the net benefits of adding further monetary stimulus in the present environment. So you won't be surprised to hear me tell you that the views I express are my own and not necessarily shared by my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. So as you might expect, the FOMC has spent a great deal of time in recent years studying labor market conditions and their implications for our monetary policy mission. In January of this year, the FOMC re released a statement regarding its longer run goals and policy strategy. That statement outlined a broad set of principles pertaining to the implementation of our congressional mandate. The, FD the FOMC spent a good deal of time on the qu this key question of how to measure performance. We started with how to measure performance against our price stability mandate. Because the inflation rate over the long run is determined by monetary policy, short and sweet, the committee has the ability to specify a numerical target for the inflation rate. The committee decided that inflation at a rate of 2% as measured by the price index for personal consumption expenditures is most consistent over the long run with the Federal Reserve statutory mandate. The maximum employment objective for the mandate also requires some sort of yardstick against which to compare actual labor market conditions so you know how well the Fed's doing. One possible approach is to gauge what employment or the unemployment rate, sort of equivalently, would be in normal times after the economy has been able to recover from the whatever adversity it's going through now or has just been through. So to be precise about this notion, to what number would the unemployment rate converge in the future in the absence of future unanticipated shocks and under the most appropriate monetary policy. So let's call that the long-run normal unemployment rate or the long-run uh, unemployment rate for short. So this is, from here on, we're projecting no further shocks, no more surprises, everything calms down, we converge to normal times, we run monetary policy the best way we can imagine what unemployment rate do you ultimately get to? No further recessions on the horizon, just good times. 
Now that measure can be thought of equivalently in terms of the path to which employment would converge in the absence of unanticipated shocks or under appropriate policy. But the employment, unemployment rate, they're just flip sides of each other. So for simplicity and convenience, in the rest of my talk, I'm just going to talk in terms of the unemployment rate. But bear in mind, I could, we could flip it over, we could translate back into employment um, with the obvious sort of translations uh, if need be. So in evaluating the current stance of monetary policy, the long-run unemployment rate would appear to be an attractive yardstick since it provides a sense of where one ultimately would like to be. But for assessing monetary policy on a month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter, meeting-to-meeting, more germane, uh, basis, the long-run unemployment rate can be very misleading. For example, when unemployment is relatively high, it's unlikely that it can be made to return to the long-run unemployment rate at a very rapid clip, say within a quarter or two. At such times, the best possible monetary policy will only bring down the unemployment rate gradually. We can debate over whether a given pass, pass, uh, I'm sorry, whether a given pace is faster than optimal or slower than optimal. We can have that debate, but there is undoubtedly some optimal pace, and it's unlikely to mean virtually instantaneous adjustment of the unemployment rate to where it's going to get in several years. Now, while that convergence process is going on, to what unemployment rate should we refer to when assessing current monetary policy? In other words, while an economy is adjusting to significant economic shocks, what constitutes maximum employment? Surely not the long-term rate, because that's because how far away we are from the rate that we're going to get to in several years, that doesn't pin down how fast we ought to be trying to get there. It doesn't pin down where the unemployment rate ought to be now. So let me give you a couple examples just to illustrate this principle. Consider a large and permanent oil price increase. Uh, such a supply shock um, reduces the productive capacity of the economy at given, given capital and labor. So on impact, inflation and unemployment generally rise. Costly and time-consuming adjustments take place in response to the shift in the relative price of inputs uh, that firms face. Businesses shift the mix of inputs, say they change what kind of energy they use, or maybe they shift away from energy-intensive inputs into other inputs. They reconfigure their capital stock to use energy more efficiently now with new prices. Consumers also alter their spending pattern, maybe a little less driving, a little less energy-intensive consumer goods. Um, and uh, in favor of other things. And over time, productive capacity is restored and real incomes gradually recover. But in the meantime, as um, we, we're getting along with the adjustment process, before those adjustments are complete, an attempt to reduce the unemployment rate too rapidly is likely to spark more inflation. Conversely, allowing disinflation to emerge may cause unemployment to decline more slowly, too slowly. In other words, there is a reference unemployment rate that is relevant for monetary policy, and until the real economic adjustments to the oil price shock have taken place, it will be above the long-run unemployment rate. Another example is an acceleration of productivity growth, similar to the one we saw in the late 1990s. This is sort of the flip side of an energy price shock. This might allow lower unemployment without accelerating inflation. A focus on long-term unemployment might lead one to tighten monetary policy, thinking things were overheating, but might lead you to tighten monetary policy prematurely. If you acknowledge that the right yardstick for monetary policy might have fallen below the long-term 
unemployment rate, and you'll get better outcomes. And I think that's what we did in the late 1990s. So third and final, more relevant example perhaps, consider a shock that causes economic activity to shift dramatically for, away from one sector toward other sectors in the economy. Such a shock could lead to persistently high unemployment because costly and time-consuming retraining is required for workers to move between the old sector and the new sector, or because capital investments are required in other sectors in order to absorb the newly available pool of labor. In the absence of further shocks, society's optimal response is likely to have the unemployment rate declining gradually over time. This, arguably, is the type of shock that drove the Great Recession we've just been through, an unexpected decline in residential construction that resulted in an oversupply of labor and capital that has been difficult to successfully redeploy to other sectors. And I'll have a little bit more to say about this, this perspective uh, later on. So these three examples illustrate a general result from the models that most contemporary economists use to analyze business cycles and monetary policy. And I'm not going to go deeply into the properties of those models, but in such models there is a reference unemployment rate to which it is most appropriate to compare current unemployment rate for the purpose of assessing monetary policy. And in general, that reference rate is a function of most, not all, but most of the shocks in the economy. The most common term for this reference rate is, is the natural rate of unemployment, and I'll carry around that term. Although I should caution, just for precision, there some authors use different terms, the efficient rate of unemployment, some use the natural rate for something else. But I think the natural rate is the most commonly used term for this in the economics profession. So I think there's clear intuition for having the unemployment yardstick for monetary policy vary with economic conditions. Modern economies are buffeted by unanticipated disturbances even at their best, economies take time to adjust. That pace of adjustment is in turn affected by a variety of frictions in the economy. Frictions in the way firms determine prices of their goods and markets clear. Frictions in the process of searching for the most profitable and promising opportunities to deploy available and capital and labor resources in new ways. And frictions in the way workers and, search and employers search for each other and determine wages. And there are other frictions as well, but those give you the, kind of the flavor of things that modern macro models tell you are, are relevant to this rate. Monetary policy is simply unable to offset all the ways in which various frictions impede the economy's adjustments of the various shocks that hit our economy. The term maximum employment should therefore be thought of as the level of employment that currently can be achieved by the central bank, taking into account its long-run policy objectives and taking into account the very real impediments to a more rapid adjustment to recent economic shocks. From this perspective, some popular empirical practices are of, are, are of dubious value in evaluating current monetary policy. For example, you'll see in the literature from time to time estimates of an older concept known as the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Kind of a mouthful. You'll see it abbreviated N-A-I-R-U. Uh, Nehru. Although I've heard Nairu. Um, but let's call it Nehru for now. Nehru estimates invariably start with the assumption 
They impose the assumption that Nehru varies only slowly, if at all, over the business cycle. So you'll see a graph of unemployment, and there's a graph of Nehru, and it just tracks along kind of a flat line. Maybe it goes up a little bit with demographic changes or other things that move slowly over time. But by assumption, they keep the, the, built, the construction of those estimates force uh, there to be no effect from shocks to the economy, from unanticipated fluctuations. There are other estimates of benchmark unemployment rates as well that also essentially impose the condition that um, prevents fluctuations in economic shocks, unanticipated shocks from hitting their estimate. Now these are reasonable strategies for estimating what I started with, the long-term unemployment rate. Those are reasonable strategies for estimating where we're going to get in five or ten years after all the shocks and their effects have dissipated and conducting monetary policy in the absolute best way. Those are great for that because they filter out the effect of recent shocks which by, by definition are going are to fade away when, but when you converge to this long run rate. But they are going to be um, misleading and incomplete as estimates of what I'm calling maximum employment of the natural rate. They're going to fail to capture important variations in the natural rate over the business cycle and they're going to be misleading guides to inflation dynamics and how monetary policy should be conducted in the short run. So, estimating quantitatively uh, the natural rate of unemployment is a difficult task. I will grant that totally because it requires us to be as precise as possible about both the shocks that drive the behavior of the economy over time and the frictions that govern or impede how the economy adjusts over time. Now, the modern macroeconomic models that I told you about that are widely used for policy analysis now, they actually specify the relationships in the economy, they specify what those frictions are, they specify what kind of shocks hit the economy. And you can take those to the data and estimate the relationships and then you line them up with recent data and they tell you what the shocks are. They tell you what the most recent shocks are. At least interpreted through the lens of that model, they give you a decomposition of the shocks that hit the economy and how much is this sector, how much is that sector, and so on. So using those, you can make inferences about the current natural rate. So within the model, there's a well-defined natural rate and given estimates of the shocks, you can calculate what it is and you get in a sense of what the inflation and policy relevant rate is. Now, that, that approach leaves considerable uncertainty because broadly similar models can lead to different results about the natural rate. Um, in addition, within any given model, there's uncertainty about the parameters you've estimated. Some of you may be familiar with this in practice. Uncertainty about the shocks you've estimated. So there's going to be uncertainty. But specifying an explicit model has the advantage of transparency regarding the range of judgments that go into any given estimate. You have to put your cards on the table and show what you're basing your estimate of the natural rate on. What, on what are you basing your sense that monetary policy can expand uh, output and employment without increasing inflation. Now, different models give you different results for sure, but I don't see any good substitute for spelling out clear models. It allows us to have the debate to say, is this shock make sense? Is that, does that match up with the anecdotal reports I get from the Fifth Federal Reserve District? 
Uh, does this match up with what people in financial markets are saying? Um, you know, and you can you can decide. You can make that judgment. It's maybe not a statistical judgment, but that's the kind of judgment you make. But you're you're at least putting on the table exactly what you're basing this reasoning on. So I, I made reference earlier um, to this statement that the Federal Reserve released in January. Very important statement. We we called it the consensus statement as we were working on it last year. It's the culmination, I should say, of work begun under um, a subcommittee chaired by Don Cohn shortly after Chairman Bernanke um, took office as chairman of the Fed. And we've we worked since then and finally January this year adopted an explicit numerical goal for inflation. The statement on our longer run goals and policy strategies recognizes this distinction I'm talking about between the natural rate as an appropriate yardstick in the short run and the long run unemployment rate concept. And I'm going to read a little bit from the statement. It's a not a long passage. The maximum level of employment is largely determined by non-monetary factors that affect the structure and dynamics of the labor market. These factors may change over time and may not be directly measurable. Consequently, it would not be appropriate to specify a fixed goal for employment. So we're saying there, it would not be appropriate to set a numerical target for the unemployment rate. Rather, the committee's policy decisions must be informed by assessments of the maximum level of employment. That's what I've been talking about. What's the natural rate? Recognizing that such assessments are necessarily uncertain and subject to revision. The committee considers a wide range of indicators in making these assessments. So you're thinking, what, what type of indicators do they use? Well, it goes on to say, information about committee participants' estimates of the longer-run normal rate of output growth and unemployment, this first concept, is published four times per year in the FOMC's Summary of Economic Projections. So that's the end of the passage I'm reading. So the identification of maximum employment as driven by a range of real economic shocks lines up precisely what I've been saying about the natural rate of unemployment. The longer-run normal rate of unemployment, it's a distinct concept. It informs committee participants' assessments of the maximum level of employment that's relevant to current policy. But notice, it didn't equate the two. In principle, the natural rate could be close to the long-run unemployment rate, uh, depending on the nature of shocks and frictions that have recently hit the economy. Now, you might expect that, in fact, um, in a mature economic expansion in which it's been many years since the most recent large shocks that disrupted the economy, maybe caused a recession, you might expect us to get pretty close to it, so the natural rate to be pretty close to the long-run rate. But generally, these rates will differ, particularly following significant economic disturbances or disruptions, when the natural rate could be well above the long-run rate, perhaps for a considerable period of time. This distinction uh, between the unemployment rate relevant to current policy and the unemployment rate we can expect to achieve in the longer run, absent further shocks, was critical to my decision to dissent on the most recent FOMC decision. The journey back to the long run rate of unemployment is taking longer than any of us would like, certainly longer than any one of us has, had anticipated. This delay has meant significant hardships for many American families, and make no mistake about it, I believe everyone on the Federal Open Market Committee understands that fully. 
But my assessment is that there are several impediments to more rapid growth that are likely to have significantly increased the natural rate right now. First, the housing market is still coping with the large inventory overhang that remains from the pre-recession boom. This sector has begun to show some encouraging signs with home prices and construction having shown some advancement this year, but housing investment is still quite low relative to historical norms and will continue to underperform until the demand for housing uh, makes more progress catching up with the existing housing stock. Second and related was the significant shift in economic activity away from residential construction and related supply industries. The rapid loss of jobs in these industries, layered on top of some ongoing, longer-run sectoral shifts, has resulted in large inflows into the ranks of the unemployed. The resulting shift in the profile of available workers has meant that reallocation and skills mismatch frictions affecting the labor market are at a relatively high level right now. Finally, the political gridlock that has delayed remedies to our unsustainable fiscal path has meant paralyzing uncertainty and that, that touches and every, every, everything in the economy touched by fiscal policy is affected by that uncertainty. And, and this appears to serious, have seriously dampened investments and hiring. Um, particularly for people considering new business initiatives that would typically be what takes up the economic slack at a time like this where there's abundant unused resources. So these forces are hard to quantify, definitely hard to quantify. But my personal sense, given all the economists I've consulted, given the analysis, array of statistical analyses I've seen, given the wide range of anecdotal qualitative reports I've had access to, is that labor market conditions have been held back by real impediments that are beyond the capacity of monetary policy to offset. The collapse in housing construction was a huge blow to our economy and it will take a substantial amount of time for us to recover by shifting labor and capital and spending towards other growth opportunities. So my assessment is that it's reasonably strong case that can be made that the natural rate of unemployment that corresponds to the Fed's maximum employment mandate is now relatively <coughs> elevated. Given that assessment, I dissented on the question of new asset purchase programs because in such circumstances, further monetary stimulus runs the risk of raising inflation in a way that threatens the stability of inflation expectations. Recently, inflation's been running very close to the committee's goal of 2% per year. In fact, if you look back over the last 20 years, inflation has averaged very close to 2%. I think it's 2.03%, despite significant quarter-to-quarter -quarter, um, and year-to-year -year fluctuations. That track record appears to have given many market participants some confidence in the Fed's commitment to keep inflation around 2% going forward. And hopefully our statement from January that actually goes public with such a commitment uh, will help. Indeed, measures of inflation expectations have been remarkably stable over the last several years. But that confidence should not be taken for granted. Perceptions that the committee was focused on reducing unemployment at the expense of making, uh, maintaining price stability would undercut that confidence and destabilize inflation. The consequences could be devastating. And we saw this in the 1970s 
when policymakers attempted to push unemployment below what they thought then was the best estimate of the natural rate. In hindsight, those estimates were low, and this has been documented in some fascinating work by Atanasio Orfanides and John Williams. Yes, the John Williams that's my counterpart at the San Francisco Fed in research going back to the <coughs> 1990s. It's worth noting that when previous asset purchase programs were adopted in 2009 and 2010, the inflation outlook was significantly different from what it is today. Back then, deflation appeared to be a very real possibility, so further accommodation, whatever it did for unemployment, also would help keep inflation closer to the committee's goal of 2%. Uh, but I think the outlook for inflation is different now. The committee statement also altered the forward guidance language regarding uh, the future of monetary policy. And it stated for the very first time that it expected a highly accommodative stance of monetary policy for, and I'll quote here, a considerable period after the eco economic recovery strengthens. So I disagreed with this statement because I believe a commitment to provide stimulus beyond the point at which the economy strengthens and growth you know, thereby increases, I think that implies too great a willingness to tolerate in higher inflation. And I think it would be inconsistent with a balanced approach to the Federal Open Market Committee's price stability and maximum employment mandates. Finally, I strongly oppose purchasing additional agency mortgage-backed securities. These purchases are intended to reduce borrowing rates on conforming home mortgages. Such purchases, compared to purchases of an equivalent amount of U.S. Treasuries, distort investment allocations because they, they, they may lower interest rate on conforming home mortgages, but they raise interest rate on other borrowers compared to just buying straight out treasuries. Channeling the flow of credit to particular economic sectors is an inappropriate role for the Federal Reserve System. Central banks abuse their independence when they promote some borrowers at the expense of others. This principle was recognized in the joint statement of the Department of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve on March 23, 2009, and I'm going to quote this. Government decisions to influence the allocation of credit are the province of fiscal authorities. That is to say, Congress and the administration. So let me conclude by emphasizing something. Monetary policy at many times involves making very tough calls. And despite our differences, I have the utmost respect and um, tremendous collegial regard on relationships with my FOMC colleagues. Given their decision, I very much hope they're correct. That substantial monetary stimulus aimed at hastening the reduction in unemployment will not raise the risk of destabilizing inflation. But given the uncertainty about the economic outlook and about that assessment, I'm sure you'll understand that we're all going to be watching the data with special vigilance in the months ahead. Thank you very much. That concludes So, um, if the organizers are willing, I, I, I think there's time for a question or two. Well, all right, yeah, I'll start with you, then there's a good back. In respect to the Fed's 2% inflation part, in respect of any consideration to the Fed's current policy, and how do you 
you know, components of, of that inflation, but you know, you know, 2% inflation is all coming from gasoline and, and corn prices, as opposed to a more broader 2% inflation driven by housing gains or wages. Is there any consideration at the Fed in terms of the makeup of, of inflation? Um, so the uh, the overall price level. So the question is, um, in selecting a two percent goal, do we give thought to the composition of inflation? So we don't. Um, you know, we have basically one instrument, and we can we can guide the value of money over time. And we've chosen to guide it in terms of a basket, its value in terms of a basket of goods. The composition, how it breaks out, we don't have tools to go beyond just targeting the whole basket of goods in essence. In a well-functioning economy, relative prices need to vary over time as real cost, marginal cost shifts, as exploration, um, new discoveries, new inventions shift the relative price of various goods. And we need to let that function well. Um, we, don't, we don't need to be interfering with the price system by messing up or targeting relative prices. We need to keep the overall basket increasing at a a pretty predictable rate of, rate of increase and uh, let the relative prices be ground out by market forces and competition. Gentlemen. So let me leave uh, regulatory policy out of this for a second and come back to it. Um, uh, on monetary policy at that meeting, I would have stood pat. I would have counseled patience. I think that's what it takes uh, to get our economy where we're going. I think monetary policy has done what it can. Um, and uh, um, so I would, have, I would have held fire. On regulatory policy, um, we've got a huge amount of cat skinning to do uh, to rebuild and complete the reconfiguration of the financial system around the new reality reflecting the precedents we set um, back in uh, 2008. Speaking of firemen and fire stations, um, and uh, um, I, I think that. You know, we have we have a lot of balancing to do there, and there's obviously considerations people have raised about uh, the, the 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 burden on the banking system and the financial system more broadly of the layer of, of controls we're laying on. Um, I think there's two levels to look at that. Uh, you know, given the huge safety net expansion, I think we don't have a choice but to safeguard that safety net and try and contain the moral hazard involved. Personally, I think the financial system and the would do a better job of um, serving the needs of the country if we were to scale back the federal financial safety net and scale back commensurately the type of regulatory constraints required to limit moral hazard. Let me just throw out two numbers. Um, if you take the, the entire financial sector, all financial firms, and add up all their debt, and for all of it, ask the question, how much of it enjoys an explicit or implicit government guarantee. In 2009, the number was 
At the end of two, I'm sorry, in 1999, the number was 42%. At the end of 2009, the number was over 59%. I don't think that trend is sustainable, and I think until we ratchet that in, we're in for trouble ahead. More, more, uh, you'll see more firemen. Um, Um, the first one's good enough for me. <laughs> um, and it uh, means I don't have to think about the second one. But I, think, I do think about the second one from time to time as well. Because uh, we're doing them, and it's important to know, you know what kind of effects they're likely to have. I think, um, you know, I, um, so we, I think we have to recognize, and, and you folks should recognize, that um, the, the economics we're relying on um, to uh, guess, sort of estimate, the effect of large-scale asset purchases of, say, treasuries or the maturity extension program on treas- long-term treasury yields and the effect of buying MBS on MBS, tre- you know, option-adjusted MBS spreads is um, uh, uh, tentative. Um, Im- I don't want to say immature, but not mature would be a good way to phrase it. Um, and um, there, there's a lot of room for skepticism. Um, about those estimates. I mean, the you know, standard finance theory you're taught is that the 10 is related to expected one, 10 years worth of expected ones. So what what short circuits that? Well, if something short circuits that, why doesn't the same thing short circuit the relationship between treasury 10s and corporate 10s, right? And no one's answered that question very well, at least that I've seen in the literature. And I think the same goes with MBS as well. So. I'm skeptical of our ability to push very hard or to get to get substantial results in pushing yields around just by altering supplies um, and uh, you know pushing away from sort of what arbitrage-free pricing would tell you the relationships ought to be um, on uh, so on empirical grounds and theoretical grounds I'm skeptical um, but as I said on as a matter of principle you know we're about making markets work better and helping financial system channel credit to the right users, the most valuable users, and I haven't seen a convincing case that housing deserves some special subsidy uh, from the central bank. Over here, I think. So, acknowledging that you speak for yourself, sir, um, at what point would the Fed's emphasis on employment at the expense of inflation, which I think is sort of at the heart of this conversation, at what point would, would that mandate um, move to a degree where you would find simply voting against the FOMC to not be enough? And clearly we're sort of around 2 to 3% now in inflation expectations. 
at what point would you say, okay, we've, we've strayed far. This mandate of the Fed has changed. And as a steward of our currency as an American, I need to make a choice. You don't have to answer that. But I would love to hear The second question is, TV prices have gone down 14% year on year, but healthcare and education costs are well and worth 5%. So we talk about a holistic basket of the CPI, but I'm curious whether it's enough to simply say, we've made a basket, it's 2%, and there we go. When the average tax-paying American has a very different expense basket to pay more. I'd love to hear the first, but I think it's important that we hear the second. I'll come back to what I said in response to the other question. It had to do with the wide difference in rates of inflation across different components of American consumers' basket of goods and services they produce. That's got to happen in a growing society. To the extent that that involves some adjustments, it involves some adjustments. But it would make it worse for us to destabilize inflation, because then you couldn't tell what was going on. You see this price going up. Is that a broader inflation trend? Is that volatility in inflation? Or can I count on that being a relative price? Now you see something go up at 5%, you know the relative price is going up at about 2%, because expected inflation is around 2%. But in a situation like the late 70s, where inflation could go from 5 or 6 up to 10 or 12 in the space of two years, 5% doesn't, 6%, 7%, you don't know. Is that going up or down in real terms? So our job is to lay the background by keeping the overall value of money on a pretty steady path, at least on average, over the medium term, and let the economy, let real economic forces sort out those relative prices. Let me go over here somewhere. Back over under the sky. Dr. Lacker, you have presented also on the economic impact of inflation, and you talked about how the economic forces sort out those relative prices. You mentioned that you would do the public to understand as much as possible about what's going to drive monetary policy in the future. And the more we can fill in the blanks of that picture for people, the better. Doing it with a calendar date has proven unwieldy and difficult. And the reason is that there's this confusion about whether it's a promise or a forecast. It's worded as a forecast. It's very clearly worded as if, hey, we're just predicting what our future selves are going to do in 2012 or 2014 or 15. But there's also a sense in which us having stated that seems to many people to convey a sense that we're going to keep interest rates lower than we otherwise would. Well, if that's what we're going to do, if we're telling people that we're going to run policy in 2015 differently than we would want to when we get around to being our 2015 selves, if we're going to do that, then let's say something that's a little clearer about that. I think an attractive path is to talk about how economic conditions could unfold and how they might affect our policy. 
Um, so, for example, um, we're going to keep interest rates uh, exceptionally low, at least until the labor market conditions strengthen significantly. I think that would be a, you know, an attractive, a resilient, kind of a robust way of saying, hey, we're waiting for labor market conditions to strengthen. And also, of course, say as long as inflation expectations remain stable and we main, maintain are maintaining our price stability, um, so a path like that was is more attractive to me. Well done. <laughs> so stop, just comment. I, I'm, con I'm broadly concerned about student loans. It has all the earmarks of, um, you know, a, a credit boom uh, overly enhanced um, through government interventions. And um, you know, on the the fortunate side is that it's not the scale and scope of what happened in the housing market. Another government, in, you know, government encouraged uh, credit boom, but. Um, you know, there are a lot of young people that are being led um, through the subsidies to loans and um, expenses uh, that are not dischargeable in bankruptcy uh, that we will all, I think, come to regret them having incurred. And I, I think it's a, a tragedy unfolding right now. Um, that kind of implies that some sort of mistake uh, or that policy, well, the policy is not sufficient to break down unemployment. Um, I guess my question is, and I think it's sort of one of the, I believe Dr. Coyne asked the objective poll, but has there really been a sufficient sort of post-mortem that's been said about the effects of all the programs in the last couple of years? Um, often there are references to studies show that uh, but there are actually really selective um, uh, set of studies. There's a paper by somebody in St. Louis Fed, whose uh, name escapes me at the moment, which basically kind of disputes that, but it gets very little airtime. Um, it looks to me as if it's sort of uh, the conclusions of a lot of the research are already um, determined uh, by the kind of research done. I kind of uh, asked, I'm asking if you think that the actual research agenda within the Fed is. And related to that going forward, uh, this is going to work through asset prices. Is there any particular, uh, what exactly is Fed monitoring on a sort of high-frequency basis to see if this is having a desired impact on financial markets and if you turn it into a sudden chaos three days? I'll stick up for research in the Federal Reserve System, having done some of it, being an avid consumer of it. Um, I know I, I get I can find both sides of an issue within the system, very thoroughly analyzed. I can find it. Um, I think a broad array of researchers call it as they see it. I think they approach the data with relatively few preconceived notions, and um, I think they they call it the way they see it. Some people will dispute the call and take the same data and draw a different conclusion, but that's what research is all about. Um, so. In terms of ex post uh, review of, of um, our actions, 
we talk about it all the time. I mean, it's, it's hard to evaluate current conditions without thinking through, all right, how much of this is the effect of QE2 or not? And um, uh, so I, I think we do a lot of ex post analysis. Um, I think that, um, I think we could do better at using an array of models. I think that um, it's a little spotty how many models we get to see um, in terms of the analysis of current conditions. I think we could do a systemat more systematic job of that using models from different reserve banks and putting them all on the table on a more regular basis. We do that periodically, but I think we could do a better job of that. I think we will over time. Um, I, you know, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I've made a lot of mistakes, and I bet you have too, but uh, <laughs> hindsight's great, you know, so uh, you, you can't, you got to be a hockey goal and look ahead. Instruments of the money market. All right. Um, so, uh, the future of the instruments of the money market is driven by supply and demand, uh, as you might, you know, expect. Um, so, demand seemed to fall off, but our ability to supply it also seemed to fall off as well. There's a lot in there. Markets, you know, the kind of the technical details of markets have changed a lot. What he's referring to is uh, something that we began, I think, in the 80s, um, and it was a it was sort of a like a little textbook. It, there was an article on Fed funds, article about commercial paper, article about RPs, article about, you know, just all these little money market, you know, facets of the money market, a little description of sort of the institutional base, who were the players, how it cleared and settled, stuff like that. Great reference material, often cited. Um, but um, if you'd like to put in um, a vote uh, for reviving instruments of the money market, I'd be happy to take that back. Well, all right, you, or you could think of this as a market opportunity. What's your institution doing about it? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So, all right, one more. I'm not at liberty to say. <laughs> so the minutes will come out in I think two weeks. Um, we'll see whether we did or not. Uh, that was a short one. One more. Uh, yeah, also a short one. On the portion of the statement regarding accommodating monetary policy statements that consider the assets of the government, does that apply to mortgage backed securities purposes or uh, just extremely low short term interest rates? So that's, that's left um, unspecified. I think that the paragraph that leads off is um, more about long-term interest rates. So I think it'd be reasonable to surmise that that's what it's aimed at. But we didn't specifically single that out. So thank you very much. It's been terrific.